You're listening to Comedy Central. March 4, 2020. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Our guest tonight is an amazing woman who has spent her entire life fighting for human rights and protections for disabled people. Judith Human is joining us, everybody. You really want to listen to her, an amazing story. Also on tonight's show, the Democratic race is down to the final two. Jurassic Park is real, and Louis Black doesn't want to see pictures of your kids. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with the coronavirus. The disease is now officially in 85 countries, and it has over 95,000 confirmed cases. And it's the reason even white people have switched to the fist bump. (laughs) And explode. (laughs) Now, here in New York, because the city is so crowded, the risk of coronavirus is especially dangerous. Because, you see, if corona can make it here, it can make it anywhere. And that's why city officials are taking action. The MTA is stepping up its cleaning efforts to prevent the spread of the coronavirus on public transit. Workers are disinfecting 427 subway stations, wiping down the turnstiles, handrails, and ticket vending machines daily. In addition to that daily cleaning, the MTA says its full fleet of subways, trains, and buses will be sanitized every 72 hours. That's right, New York is trying to keep the subway clean to protect riders from spreading coronavirus which is a noble instinct, but good luck trying to keep the New York City subway system clean. Yeah, (laughs) you can actually hear that paper towel screaming. Ah! (laughs) And by the way, maybe I'm just noticing it now, but like, was I the only one who was like, wait, now they're cleaning the subway? (laughs) What were they doing before? Oh, well, now we'll clean it every 72. What were you doing before? Although that video is a little bit funny because it actually looks like we're cleaning up so we can impress the coronavirus when it arrives. (laughs) Yeah, so the coronavirus is gonna come on the subway like, wow, is this for me? (laughs) But for real though, everyone on the subway is taking the threat seriously. If you ride the trains, you know what I'm talking about. People are avoiding handrails. The rats are wearing little hazmat suits. (laughs) Yeah, even the subway masturbators have switched from lotion to Purell. Yeah. (laughs) It burns, but it's responsible. And remember, you have to do it long enough to sing happy birthday twice. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Because while humans are worried about getting wiped off the planet, there's another species that might be coming back. Scientists say that they've discovered dinosaur DNA along with other biological material in a fossilized skull in Montana. Now, the skull belonged to a Hypacrosaurus, which was a plant-eating, duck-billed dinosaur, which has been extinct for around 66 million years. Now, DNA is only expected to survive a million years. So if the discovery is confirmed, it would change our understanding of biology. Okay, it may change your understanding of biology. (laughs) I already didn't know any of that shit. (laughs) What I do understand is for the first time ever, they found actual dinosaur DNA. And guys, if, if we have dinosaur DNA, 
we have to make Jurassic Park. I mean, yeah, no, look, I, I know, I know we've seen the movies, I know how it's gonna end, but those first two days are gonna be dope. It's gonna be so much fun. Like, if my options are dying from coronavirus or a velociraptor, I know what I'm choosing. Yeah, gas up that bubble thing. Let's do this, baby. You know, I actually, I actually feel bad for dinosaurs if we bring them back. You know, because everyone assumes that if they'll return, they'll kill us and take over the world. But shit has changed, my friends. Yeah, the fast food industry does not mess around. Yeah, once Popeyes sees a big meaty animal walking around. Yeah, it's two weeks until we're all like, love that T-Rex from Popeyes. <laughs> and imagine, can you imagine what it would be like for a dinosaur? Because we're always like, dinosaurs could come back, but we are expecting them, for them, if they come back, in modern times, there's gonna be one dinosaur, the first one looking around like, everything is so different. <laughs> there's cities, there's cars, and I don't understand. Oh, Bernie, hey! <laughs> Bernie! Good to see you again! Hello, Carl. Hello, Carl, we need to talk. I need your help. Did you pass Medicare fall? It's getting close, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, some news from the tech world. If you're worried about being canceled because of your old tweets, well, help is on the way. Twitter is starting to test tweets that disappear after 24 hours. The company is calling the new format fleets because of their short-lived nature. The feature is similar to Instagram stories and snaps on Snapchat. Fleets won't be available to be retweeted and won't have likes, but people can respond to them. That's right. Soon, you'll be able to post tweets that get deleted automatically after 24 hours which means the Oscars can have a host again. Yay! And I think, I think more apps should incorporate this feature. You know, like they should say, if you send a text message to someone you like, but they don't reply, that message should also disappear automatically because I'm not a loser. He's gonna leave me on red. And as much as I like this idea, I think there are a few ways that Twitter can improve it even more. Like, they should say if you send a tweet after midnight, it automatically deletes itself after two minutes, yeah? No one says anything good at that time. They should also have another feature that if the president sends a tweet, they should delete before he hits send. Yeah. They just be sitting there like, all these Mexicans, all these Mexicans. I'm hungry. All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. The Democratic primaries. If yesterday was Super Tuesday, today is what the f Wednesday. <laughs> so let's catch up on the fallout of the biggest voting nights in the primaries in another installment of World War D. <laughs> Going into Super Tuesday, the Democratic field had been narrowed down to four main candidates, which is a long way from the original 6,000. And as the dust began to settle, it became clear there were two winners and two losers. Elizabeth Warren, one of the night's losers. You see, she failed to pick up a single state. And to add insult to injury, in her home state of Massachusetts, she came in third. Yeah, which is pretty rough. It's like if you came home to find your parents had replaced you with another child. <laughs> Just be like, sorry, honey, we'd like Joe Biden to be our daughter now. But she wasn't the only one with a disappointing evening. 
Yeah, another candidate who hit a low point was Mike Bloomberg, former New York mayor and best person to sit behind at a concert. Because <laughs> after spending the GDP of a small country on his campaign, his quest for the nomination ended in failure. We come in with this Fox News alert. Super Tuesday made for a super shakeup. Democrat Mike Bloomberg today dropped out of the race after his dismal showing last night. Yesterday was a disaster for Bloomberg. He spent more than $500 million and won only a few dozen delegates. Last night campaigning in Florida, Bloomberg tried to sound upbeat. No matter how many delegates we win tonight, we have done something no one else thought was possible. That's right, we spent half a billion dollars to absolutely eat shit. <laughs> they said it couldn't be done, but we did it. We did it. I'm not gonna lie, I, I still can't believe Mike Bloomberg spent $500 million to not be president. <laughs> no, like, I'm also not gonna be the president, but I spent nothing, I... <laughs> no, so in a way, I feel like I saved $500 million, you know? <laughs> It really is, that's how I feel. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is, right before he dropped out, Bloomberg bought more TV airtime <laughs> that he doesn't need anymore. But I was thinking, like, since he's already paid for it, he should use it, right? He should just come on TV and share his random thoughts. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mike Bloomberg. Have you ever noticed you've never seen birds having sex? <laughs> Kinda weird, huh? Anyway, see you guys in the next ad break. He should just do that the whole time. Now, the reason Bloomberg is dropping out now after just one bad night is that you must remember he entered the race to be the moderate alternative to Bernie Sanders. But last night, the voters were very clear that they already know who they want their moderate candidates to be. The night belonged to Joe Biden. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. The former vice president with a massive comeback on the biggest night of the primary so far. A fired up Joe Biden celebrating his historic night, racking up a string of commanding victories, including a clean sweep of states in the South and a stunning win in delegate rich Texas. The press and the pundits have declared the campaign dead. Tell that to the folks in Virginia, North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee. That's, that's a Joe Biden we haven't seen in a while. Look at him, huh? smiling, full of energy, naming states that actually exist. <laughs> no, cause let's be honest, let's be honest. We were all waiting for him to give a shout out to Pennsylvania. <laughs> I'm serious, I don't think I've seen Biden this happy since that time Obama taught him how to ride a bike. This has been a while, I mean. <laughs> and of course, of course, no Joe Biden speech would be complete without a few moments where the Wi-Fi dropped out. It's a good night. And it seems to be getting even better. By the way, it's my little sister, Valerie, and I'm Jill's husband. Oh, no, this is the, Oh, you switched on me. This is my wife, this is my sister. They switched on me. No, Joe. Really? Joe Biden called his sister his wife? That's an awkward mistake. And if you are gonna talk about your sister wife, you should have done it sooner because then you could have won Utah. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, hi, I'm Mike Bloomberg. I was thinking, how does a train turn around? 
anyway, see you guys next ad break. <laughs> now, the sister wife thing was just a silly gaffe that didn't derail the night. What did cause a bit of concern was when two protesters stormed the stage. During Biden's speech, protesters rushing the stage. You see it there coming within feet of the former vice president and Dr. Jill Biden, his wife. One woman was swiftly removed by the former vice president's body man. Then moments later, see it again, a second protester storming onto the stage. Simone Sanders, his senior advisor, she yeah. Look, just she comes out of nowhere flies on stage and rips one of the protesters off. Dr. Jill Biden protecting her husband by shoving off a protester that was storming the stage. Her response, I'm a silly girl. Yo, 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 that. Jill Biden, see that? Stepped in and blocked that protester like a white lady Jackie Chan. Bam! <laughs> I mean, I knew she was a doctor. I just didn't know her PhD was in ass whipping. That was amazing. <laughs> And it, it wasn't just Biden's wife. Yeah, his senior campaign advisor, Simone Sanders, did you see that? She handled that protest like a professional bodyguard. Hell, <laughs> Biden's got more women protecting him than T'Challa. Like, he's just killing it out here. No wonder he's winning the black vote. So overall, overall, it was a good night for Biden. But don't forget, this contest is far from over because this race is all about winning delegates, right? Not just states, but delegates. And even with his good night last night, Biden is still basically neck and neck with Bernie in the delegate count, all right? And up until this point, these two have been super friendly on the campaign trail, laughing, hugging at the debates. But something tells me those days might be over. This morning, it's now a two-man race. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders already sharpening his attacks against Biden. One of us in this race led the opposition to the war in Iraq. You're looking at him. Another candidate voted for the war in Iraq. One of us has spent his entire life fighting against cuts in Social Security, wanting to expand Social Security. Another candidate has been on the floor of the Senate calling for cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and veterans programs. That's right. One of us is a bitch ass, the other person is me. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Spread the word. Yeah, people, you can see the gloves are officially off. The dentures are in. <laughs> and things, things are about to get messy between these two. Not just because there's Vicks vapor up everywhere, no, because. This is the home stretch to find out who will be the Democratic nominee. And Bernie, if you're gonna attack Joe Biden, I wish you the best of luck, but remember not to get too close because then you'll have to deal with Jill. <laughs> we'll be right back. story falls through the cracks. Lewis Black catches it for a segment we call Back in Black. Let's talk about kids. I hate them. They're loud, they're clumsy, and their hands are always covered in jam. They didn't even eat a sandwich. 
the jam is just there. But in this age of social media, the kids aren't the problem. It's their goddamn parents. From baby's first bath to those toddler temper tantrums. Parents are sharing more about their kids online than ever before. 92% of kids under the age of two already have a digital footprint, meaning photos and personal information about them already exist online. Some call this sharenting. This is when parents actively share their child's digital identity. Wow, sharenting, what fun! I could just sharent in my pants right now. <laughs> but that's right. Parents are sharing every stinking, soul-sucking moment of their kids' boring lives. Think about it. What do babies do? They shit, they scream, they pass out. If I wanted that, I'd go to Mardi Gras. At least there, the boobs aren't for feeding. But turns out, sharenting isn't just annoying, it could also ruin your kid's life. Sharenting is no joke. More than 140,000 children are victims of identity theft each year, and the number keeps growing as more information is shared across social media. You might think posting a birth announcement with your baby's name and date of birth is safe, but if you're also sharing your maiden name and location, that's enough to open a bank account or credit card in your infant's name. And chances are your child won't discover it till they're much older, when they apply for a student loan or that first credit card. You see what you've done, you oversharing shitheads? You screwed your kid's credit. Instead of a visa, they'll be trying to pay with a nude photo of them sitting in a pumpkin. Plus, how dare you rob them of the experience of ruining their own credit? That's a rite of passage. But it's not surprising that after living in this oversharing world, the kids have had enough. Parents and grandparents facing backlash from their children for oversharing on social media. 14-year-old Lillian asked her mother not to post any photos of her without permission. But her mom, Kate, admits she just couldn't resist. I knew she didn't want me to share them. I, I justified it by saying, oh, it's fine, it's a cute picture. Like, why wouldn't she want me to share that? Or why would she care? Because she looks cute. <laughs> I thought she looked cute. <laughs> But that's not really the issue, is it? <laughs> Quick, get your camera, Mom. You'll want to capture this magical moment when your daughter decided to hate you forever. <laughs> you know you failed as a parent when you're getting lessons in online responsibility from a goddamn teenager. These are the people who would French kiss a taser for TikTok. <laughs> but look, kids, kids talking to your parents isn't going to be enough. They're not gonna stop until you show them what it's like to be on the receiving end of oversharing. So here's my solution. If they're gonna post your private moments, you post their private moments. Like how about a photo of daddy going potty? Or surprise your mommy with an adorable snapshot during bath time. And the next time you tag your dad on Instagram, be sure to include his social security number. Happy 40th, Pops. Your age may be going up, but your credit is going down. <laughs> Trevor. Lewis Black, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Daily 
Fisher, everybody. My guest tonight is a lifelong civil rights advocate for people with disabilities. She's also the author of Being Human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist. And she's featured in the upcoming Netflix documentary, Crip Camp. Please welcome Judith Human. Thank you so much for being here. Can I just say, reading, reading this book, I, I expected to be impressed by it, but I wasn't quite expected for how much of a badass you would be. <laughs> um, no, because you, you, you don't just advocate for human rights and, and rights for people with disabilities, but, but you fight for them, and you fight for them with a passion. Welcome to the show. Before I get into my first question, I, I, I guess what really blew my mind about your story is that I specifically have taken for granted so many things in life that I feel like were always there, ramps, you know, for getting into stores, uh, you know, ramps that help people get into buses when traveling, all, all measures that we put in place to help everybody be part of society. You lived in a world where that wasn't true and you fought to make those changes. What was that world like before the world we live in today? So I grew up in Brooklyn, all of you from Brooklyn. And um, <laughs> at that time, so I was born in 1947, I had polio. In 1949, there were no laws. There were no federal laws that made it illegal to discriminate against many people. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Civil Rights Act in the U.S. didn't come about till 1964, and the disability community was not included in that. So my world was, A, there were no motorized wheelchairs at that time because the technology wasn't there. Right. And so um, I lived in a neighborhood where there were small private homes, and I couldn't get across the street by myself because there, were, there was a step on either side. Wow. And um, still a problem today, housing is not necessarily accessible. So you'll see in the book where I talk about going from my parents' house to my neighbor's house and having to scream into the house to ask my friend to come out and play. But um, as I got older, it became a bigger problem because the school in our neighborhood was not accessible. My mother took me to that school, um, PS198. At that time, it wasn't accessible. After the laws came into being, in 1981, it was renovated, the school became accessible. But the principal denied me entrance into the school because I couldn't walk, and he said I could be a fire hazard. But said not to worry, because the Board of Education would send a teacher to my house, mm -hmm. which they did for a total of two and a half hours a week for the first, second, third, and half of the fourth grade. So I think you can see um, that the landscape has changed in many ways. Movie theaters weren't accessible. Um, I went to a Chinese restaurant once with a group of friends in wheelchairs and the manager told us we had to leave. And that's when I get really fired up. So there really is, <laughs> I, I, it kind of comes out of me and I thought, we're not leaving, but I can't just kind of say, we're not leaving. So I said, call the police. And the guy was like, and I said, we're not leaving, call the police. And of course he didn't call the police. Right. And then we stayed there. But um, I think what's really important. Yeah. I think it, it feels like that, that's been the story of your life though, is, is defiantly uh, you know, reminding people or, or even exposing to people 
how many obstacles so many people in our society face. You know, as an able-bodied person, I take so many things for granted. We take things for granted. I where... call you non-disabled. You call me non-disabled? Oh, I never know which term it is, to be honest, because in I the book... I call you non-disabled because we also... Um, because the likelihood of you acquiring a disability uh, temporarily or permanently is statistically very high. So... Did you just threaten me? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> You, you, we take for granted, though, either way, how, how little it changes our lives if we don't have disabilities versus how much of an impact it makes positively in other people's lives. Children can go to school. Children can, can meet with friends and associates. People can go to work. People can live independently. You realize that there was a deficiency in America at that time, and there's still a lot of work to be done. The protests that you, that, you, that you helped put together, though, was something no one had ever thought of before. We saw a little bit of it in that clip, but you decided to shut New York down, basically. This is a very funny story. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of funny stories, but anyway. <laughs> so um, President Nixon had vetoed the Rehabilitation Act, which has this important set of laws in it under Title V. And we had organized a, a demonstration in Manhattan outside a federal building. But because the buses weren't accessible and the trains weren't accessible, we weren't able to get anybody to go out and scope out this building. Right. Well, it turns out this building is probably the only building in the city where there's virtually no traffic around it. And we were having a demonstration and we went and sat in the street and nobody really cared because there were hardly any cars. And so, but the police were there and they said, what would you like? And they wanted us to leave and I said, well, where is Nixon headquarters? So the officer literally called in and said, where is Nixon headquarters? <laughs> so we took the 50 of us and we got over to Nixon headquarters. It was on Madison Avenue. It was, it was completely unplanned. And so there we were, 50 of us, right. from Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan and the Bronx. And we decided, okay, we're gonna shut down the streets. And what you didn't show in the clip is Ann Coppola, who is a little bit more than three feet tall, who's talking about how there we were sitting, like shutting off all of the Madison Avenue area. Right. Then we pulled back because it was a little scary with all these trucks pissed off about how we were shutting down the city. But nonetheless, we were able to do it. But what I think is really important about my story is that my story isn't my story. So my story is really the story of many other people. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Joyner, who helped me write this book because it wouldn't have come to being without her. Um, friends of mine with disabilities living in different parts of the world are also talking about how this is their story. Because the issue of discrimination and oppression and um, how our lives have been limited and how people are really gaining back our voices. And I think one of the important parts of the film, Crip Camp, that people will see mm -hmm. is a camp where disabled kids went together and how, you know, we went to a camp and we had fun, but we also really use it as an opportunity to be together because in so many ways, disabled people are isolated from each other. And so the camp really allowed us to begin to fantasize what we wanted the world to look like, and then also began to question why things weren't happening. And I think that really, has been the crux of what's gone on in the United States and South Africa and countries around the world. Right. Where people have finally said, we are not gonna tolerate this anymore. It's, it's been 
30 years now since the American Disabilities Act was passed, many would feel like everything has been done and everyone has access to what they need. What do you still feel needs to be improved specifically in the United States? So I think the United States and around the world, one of the big issues is that people with disabilities need to feel proud of who we are. Um, we need not to be ashamed of who we are. Many, many people with disabilities have invisible disabilities, like epilepsy or diabetes or depression or um, anxiety or whatever the disability may be. And people are frequently afraid of speaking out because mm -hmm. of the stigma. And what we find when we start speaking up about who we are with pride and, and really ownership that we have a right to be equal members of our society wherever we live, that really makes a change. So I would say that the law is great, needs more implementation, more technical assistance. There are other provisions of laws that we need to have, but fundamentally, we as disabled people and as allies, like I know you are, because you've done some great work on your program, mental health piece that you did was fantastic. Oh, um, that's really, I think, what the objective is, that we as disabled people need to band together, speak out against oppression or discrimination against anyone, and that needs to be the norm. And I wanna just also say, you know, I live in DC, and the metro there, uh, some of the most frequent users of the elevators are men and women who have babies in baby carriages. Mm -hmm. So I think we really need to also look at the kinds of accommodations that theoretically have been made for disabled people actually benefit so many other people. All right. And right. people don't even realize why they're there. That's really beautiful. I I honestly, I loved every part of your story because of how fierce it is, because of how funny it is, because of how interesting it is, because of how much you learn. I mean, I learned about stories in and around the Disabilities Act, the story of America, and I learned that there was once a time in New York when there was no traffic on some streets. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you so much for being here. Being Human, a beautiful tale from real life is available now. And Netflix will feature Crip Camp beginning March 25th. Judith Human, everybody. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.